a rite of passage for me. Well, let's Sundays, but you're ready for Family Sunday, and so this is a big step. Now, I know a lot of our kids, they, uh, I know we have some artists in the, in the crowd, and so if you are a kid and you have something to draw with and something to write, I've got a mission for you. I want you to draw me a picture of a tree, and I want this to be the biggest, baddest-looking, fruit-bearing tree that you can come up with. Okay, and I'd be curious to see, because we're going to be talking about trees in a little bit, and I want to see kind of what your tree looks like compared to the tree that we're going to be talking about today. And so if you have a, a pencil or some colors and some paper in front of you, I, I welcome you or I, I invite you to, to, to draw me a tree, okay, um, as we, we get into this. So a couple weeks ago, uh, a handful of our students uh, went with a group of our adults in the church to Shaw Island for a bike ride. Now the plan was we would meet at the ferry terminal with our bikes, uh, we would take the ferry over to Shaw Island, and then we would enjoy a nice bike ride, we would have lunch, and, uh, and just, just enjoy the, the, the island's scenery. And this was, this was a fantastic idea. In fact, I, I can say that because I can't claim credit for it. This was actually the idea of our deacons. Uh, it was spearheaded by Steve McLean and, and Dennis Asselin. Uh, and, and in fact, if I were to be completely honest with you, when, when Steve approached me about this idea, I had some very serious reservations. Okay? Not because it was a bad idea. This is actually something I've been wanting ways to integrate our students with, with the adults and get them together. No, uh, my serious reservations came from the, this idea that I am not really what you would call a bicyclist. So I, I can literally count on like one hand the number of times I've been on a bike in the last 10 years. And that's including the stationary bike uh, at the gym. And so obviously, before I'm agreeing to do anything, I want to know what I'm getting myself into. You see, I, I've been here long enough to know that bike riding is pretty serious business up here for a lot of you. And so I just asked Steve, I said, you know, what, what kind of bike ride are we talking about here? And I was, I was assured by Steve uh, that this would be a leisurely bike ride with minimal traffic, minimal hills. That was, that was good enough for me. I can handle leisurely. And so I said, this, this should be really fun. Let's do it. Now, can I just digress just for a moment and say, our family's been in Anacortes about a year, just a little over a year. Uh, during that time, I've been educated in a lot of the cultural differences between the Pacific Northwest and the South, where I came from. And, and I can now add another one to my list. You see, apparently the term leisure means something very different up here than it does in the south. <laughs> the moment I knew I was in trouble was, was when we got to the ferry terminal and, and I'm strolling up with my bike and I'm looking at everyone else's bikes uh, and they've got all these fancy gears and switches and They've got fancy equipment like helmets. And, <laughs> and I strolled up with my one-speed Huffy uh, with the extra padded seat. Uh, and that was kind of the first hint that I was in for a long day. <laughs> 
Now the, now the next clue came when we stepped off the ferry and on to Shaw Island. You see, when Steve said leisurely, I envisioned this nice paved path, perhaps on the ocean shore, uh, a nice cool breeze in my face, songbirds serenading our group in the background. And what I saw when I stepped off the boat was a road that looked like it literally could be leading up Mount Baker. <laughs> to say that panic set in would be an understatement. Like on the inside, and I'm hiding this as best as I could, but I'm in full-blown crisis mode because I can't ride a bike very well, but I can do simple math. And I'm looking at all the known factors here, like my fitness level and my ability to ride a bike and the 90-degree incline in front of me, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there's going to be some major laws of physics having to be broken for me to survive this thing. But I was already past the point of no return. All I could do was just put on a uh, brave face and move forward. And so I just kept walking with the herd up the uh, mountain doom. Um, (laughs) Luckily, we actually walked it. We didn't ride it. And um, that was kind of good news because the first part of the ride meant it would be downhill, which I was really, uh, really excited about. And so I'm thinking to myself, sweet, you know, this may not be as bad as, as I thought. My confidence began to grow. Um, I, w- I, I was flying down the hill. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm t- toward the front of the pack. I'm thinking to myself, yes, I got this. We can do this. And then we hit the first hill. And something crazy and unexpected happened. I began to slow down. People started passing me. First, it was the teenage boys. Then it was the older adults. Finally, it was the middle school girls. (laughs) And I I don't understand. I am pedaling as fast as I can, as hard as I can. My thighs are on fire. There are beads of sweat that are just pouring down my forehead. And those girls just breeze past me like it was nothing. Needless to say, it was a humbling day in many ways. It was an exhausting day for sure. We, uh, we ended up riding just about 10 miles over quite a few small hills. Uh, I spent half of those miles walking my bike up the hills, the other half racing down them. But in all seriousness, it really was a wonderful day. Uh, it, was, it was really neat to just see people of different ages coming together and connecting and sharing memories uh, together. I mean, we enjoyed a beautiful ferry ride we, we ate lunch uh, near the ocean shore. We searched for hermit crabs under rocks. We played games while we waited for the ferry to come back. Uh, we visited a monastery, which was really neat. Uh, a small group of us, you know who you are out there, got reprimanded by a nun. All right? I can cross that off my bucket list now. It was awesome. <laughs> I mean, if they didn't want us to ring the bell tower, they shouldn't have left the gate open with the rope dangling down in clear view. But overall, it was, it was a really good time. And, and there was one point on our trip where we're leaving the monastery and we're heading back to the ferry terminal and we actually take a wrong turn and we miss a turn and we ended up at the bottom of this enormous hill. And so as I'm walking my bike up the never-ending hill uh, with a lot of time to reflect on life, I began to think about wrong turns. Uh, a lot of you know that I'm directionally challenged, and so I'm kind of an expert 
on wrong turns. Some wrong choices only result in minor setbacks. You get back on the road pretty fast. Um, others, wrong turns, have more dangerous consequences that are a bit more serious, maybe like putting you out on a narrow one-lane road overlooking a 400-foot cliff in the middle of the Swiss Alps, um, which is a completely different story uh, for another time. I should have woken up Sherry and asked her which turn I should have taken on that one. But the point is that choosing right paths and avoiding wrong turns is vital if you want to reach your desired destination. And this is especially true when it comes to matters that are the most important in life. The psalm that we're going to be looking at today is Psalm 1. In fact, if you want to go in, if you have a Bible and you want to flip there, you can. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. I want to read this psalm to you. Before we do, as you're flipping there, uh, just a quick introduction about this psalm. Uh, Psalm 1 is actually, it was written as the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. It was written as a doorkeeper for the book. So essentially, what that means is you can't really fully understand the book of Psalms or even the rest of the Bible if you don't understand Psalm 1. And so it's important for us to look at this and really spend some time examining it. So follow along with me. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor stamps or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We have two paths laid out before us. Before we ever take a step toward either one, we're told where each one leads and what each one looks like. You can imagine a fork in the road and having to decide where to go. Now the first path that we have described here is the path of the blessed. And blessed is not a word that we throw around much in our culture today. And so what in the world do they mean by this word blessed? Well, the literal translation is pretty simple. It's happy, fortunate. And so the idea here is happy is the one that follows this path. This is a path that leads to genuine happiness. Now, at first, I was very hesitant to use the word happiness, all right? Maybe ideas of a prosperity gospel come up uh, or things like that. Because a lot of times when we use the word happiness, we mistake real happiness for the emotion of of feeling happy. And there's a huge difference between being happy and feeling happy. Um, Feeling happy is this occasional outward condition. Uh, uh, Maybe, you know, feeling happy a lot of times is nothing more than just a temporary escape from uh, a, a disappointing reality. I want to make myself feel better in the moment, so I'm going to do you fill in the blank. And it's not bad to have these things that we look forward to. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that what's being talked about here in Psalm 1 
this path of the, the happy life, it's speaking of something way more than feeling happy. It's talking about a sense of ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction that doesn't go away. It stays with you regardless of what's going on in life. That's what's being described here. And now, so right off the bat, knowing that, I want to make two bold claims. And these are claims that I feel confident in making from what I see in Scripture, but also from what I see in life experience. And the first claim is this. I believe happiness is a universal longing. I believe that we as humans were wired to pursue happiness. We see that around us all the time. The second claim I want to make is God cares about your happiness. He does. He wants you to be happy. That's the, that's the point of Psalm 1. It's this idea that there are a lot of paths out there that promise happiness, but there's only one that really can deliver on the promise. And so this is the question that we have to answer, and I want you to listen carefully to this. Where are you and I pursuing happiness and fulfillment? Where are you and I looking for and chasing after happiness and fulfillment? The psalm really starts in an interesting way. If you notice that, it actually is alerting us to the paths that we should avoid. That's the very first thing it tells us. Look at it in, in verse, the second part of verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so what we see right here is a progression. It's a progression of three stages that when you take them as a whole, they describe a life that is opposed to God and his ways. Do you see what this is implying? The movement onto a pathway away from God is not something that happens all at once. It's a gradual movement of slow, gradual compromises. As followers of Christ, we're not exempt from the danger of this. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. This is something we need to take seriously. And in this passage, there's actually two progressions that are being, being given here. Now, the first one is a progression of stature. If you see, the person starts off by walking. And as he's walking, all of a sudden he stops and stands. And then he gets comfortable, comfortable enough standing that he decides to sit and just hang out. And that's kind of an important idea because sitting in this ancient culture meant a few things. It meant uh, putting down roots. It meant settling down. Where you sat defined who you were and who you affiliated with. And so that's the first progression. The second progression is one of behavior. You see, it starts off by listening to the counsel of the wicked. The wicked are just people that willfully do wrong. They do wrong intentionally. And if you listen to the advice of these people, before too long, you're going to be standing with sinners. Now, sinners kind of takes it a little bit further because the term sinners right there insinuates this idea of someone who's made sinning their way of life. They've gotten into the habit of sinning and they really don't care. And if you, you mess around with sin for too long, 
and you make sin in your habit, you run the risk of becoming a scoffer. And a scoffer even takes it up another level because scoffers are people that ridicule the things that God loves. They make fun of or kind of, you know, turn their head at the things that God loves. I like the way Warren Wearsby put it. This is good. He said, if you start listening to the advice of the ungodly, you will soon be standing in their way of life and finally you will sit right down and agree with them. So what this verse is telling us is this. You want to be happy? Start by examining the voices of influence you're allowing into your life. That's the first step. Now obviously in this context, relationships was the key way that people were influenced, right? And so that's important. We ought to be looking at the relationships in our life. We ought to be looking at regularly thinking about and examining who are we letting in and who are we maybe not pursuing that we should, you know? Are there potentially negative relationships that I need to distance myself from? Are there people that I should be like pursuing and wanting to chase and be at and go after because they're going to be a great influence in me? Do I have people in my life that will encourage me on this walk of following Jesus? And these are the questions we should be asking ourselves on a normal, regular, consistent basis. Now, I do think that in addition to relationships with people, there are other voices that we need to consider. You see, in our modern age, we live in a time where we have a, an endless stream of voices at the tip of our fingertips, right? It's crazy. With this little device, I can watch television shows, pull up movies, look through Netflix, pull up YouTube videos, I can listen to music uh, whenever I want, I can play video games while I'm communicating with people from all over the world. An endless stream of voices in this little machine right here. And let's be honest that there are a lot of us in here, it's these faceless voices that actually dominate our attention more than the face-to-face contact. It's becoming more and more prevalent in our students. And so it is important that we examine this aspect of our lives too. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are bad, your body will be full of darkness. But if your eyes are good, your body will be full of light, basically. Uh, And what he's saying there is be careful about what you let into your body. Be careful what you look at, what you listen to. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble... Whatever is right or pure or lovely or admirable or excellent or praiseworthy, these are the things you ought to be thinking about and dwelling on. And so here is the big question. Are the majority of the messages that we receive on a daily basis in line with or opposed to the things that God loves? I'll say it again. Are the majority of the messages that we receive on a daily basis in line with or opposed to the things that God loves? You see, we have in front of us this big road sign that says warning, potential danger. And we would be unwise to at least not stop and examine our lives in lieu of this. I've heard from countless students, uh, you know, the things that I listen to, the things I watch, it's not a big deal because I don't let it affect me. I've heard that over and over and over again. I want to put that to the test. 
And again, it's a silly little experiment. It's not, this is not super technical or anything like that. But I think, first of all, the Bible differs with this thought. I think psychology differs with this thought. So I'm going to, let's do a little quick experiment. I am going to let you think about anything that you want to in a minute. Anything that you want to, except for do not think about pink elephants. Anybody in here think about pink elephants? All right. I think most of us may, may have at least that image popped in our mind. It's funny, just a silly little exercise, but maybe we don't have as much control over our minds and what we think about as we think we do. We need to be careful of what we're letting in. Okay, so we've been warned about what to avoid. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Let's get to the secret of happiness. The secret of happiness is revealed to us in verse 2. So let's read it. The blessed person, the happy person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You want to know the secret of happiness? There it is. You want to be happy? Find your delight in the right thing and dwell on it. You see, we, we delight in things that bring us joy and pleasure. Uh, we don't have to force ourselves to think about those things. They're almost like magnets, like really powerful magnets that just pull us to them, right? The little tests or little quiz we took about what you think about in your free time, what you, what you do in your free time. Those are the things that we're drawn to. And I don't know what that was for you, and, and you don't need to, to let me know that. But it's this idea that what are we delighting in? That's something we probably ought to be asking ourselves because the answer to those questions reveal the delight of your heart. And what Psalm 1 tells us is that real happiness comes when you delight in the law of the Lord. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you and transparent and say when I think of the word law, delight is not the first word that comes to mind. Okay, I'm not at that point yet. I mean, what in the world is so delightful about the law of the Lord? That sounds really kind of restrictive to me. I think a law, I think a restriction. Laws limit what I'm allowed to do. They take away my freedom. But do they really? In reality, laws are meant to provide freedom. Laws that restrict things like stealing or assault or murder help keep people from living in fear. Just imagine what life would look like if everything was permissible. I mean, it would be absolute chaos and anarchy. Laws ensure freedom in that they allow people to live and experience a life without fear. And yet, we all know that human law is imperfect because we as humans are imperfect. Sometimes our laws may reflect human depravity or corruption. But what we know about God is God's laws are always perfect. We can always trust them. Uh, therefore, they provide perfect freedom. In this sense, the law of the Lord is life-giving. It allows us to experience life to its greatest degree, and it becomes that which we were intended to be. God's law is meant to take us from a state of just merely existing to actual living. I want you to hear this. Pay close attention to this, please. God's law, as one commentator said, is not a bunch of written rules, 
God's law is God's rule of life. It's, it's the written account of things like his nature, his character, his desires. It's the reality and way that his kingdom operates. And happiness comes when we align ourselves in his reality, his desires, his purposes. Instead of trying to focus on building up my little kingdom, I put myself in something more ultimate and I invest in his kingdom. And that's where happiness comes from. That's what we're called to delight in. Now, can I stop for a moment? I wanna, there's going to be two truths that I give you that if you're taking notes, you want to make sure to write these down. These are the most, two of the most profound things I'll say. And I can say that because they aren't mine. I stole them from Tim Keller. So uh, I can tell you that these are going to be good. They're just too good not to share. Here's one big truth about happiness. Happiness will never be found in seeking happiness. It only comes in seeking something greater than happiness. I'll say it one more time so you can have time to write it down. Happiness will never be found in seeking happiness. It only comes in seeking something greater than happiness. I mean, this makes sense of all sorts of the crazy things that Jesus said. I mean, just look at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, those blessed statements that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, are actually kind of his commentary or his elaboration on Psalm 1, if you want to look at it that way. He takes this thought and he just takes it to the next level. And he said, what does he say? Does he say, happy are you if you pursue happiness? No. He says, happy are you if you do this, if you do this, if you pursue something greater than happiness. Think about what he says in the next chapter, Matthew 6. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then you get all the other stuff thrown in with it. Or when he makes statements like, if you want to lose or want to gain your life, you got to lose it. What does that mean? It means that you lose yourself in something greater than just your own personal little kingdom. If you make happiness your top priority, you'll never find it. Invest your life in the one thing that's ultimate and everlasting, and you get happiness thrown in. Now, it's not surprising here that we find the words delight and meditate together. Those are two, the two verbs here. Uh, because the things that we enjoy the most are the things that we think about, right? They're the things that we ultimately pursue. And, and so Warren Wearsby, he, he kind of, he talked about meditation. And, and this is what he said. I really liked it. He said, meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. Think about that for a moment. Meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. Meditation involves taking in God's word, chewing on it, applying it to our lives and making it a part of our inner person. That got me thinking. I started thinking about this idea of, of God's word. And in fact, Jesus talked about his words being like food, right? Like living bread. Uh, and I just, I started thinking about what if we were to treat God's word like we treated food? Craving it, right? You know what it is to crave something that, that just is really appealing to you. Consuming it throughout the day. What if we consume God's word like we consumed food throughout the day? We get hungry for it when it's been too long since we've uh, 
had a meal? What would our lives look like? Would they be any different if we treated God's word like we treated food? Just something to think about. Let's move on. Verse 3. So now, this is where we come to the tree. So uh, you guys and girls that are, that are drawing trees, I'm curious to see. I might have you add a few things to your pictures here, so just be ready. Um, it says we have an image that's given of what the truly happy life is like, what it looks like. So just read along. Verse 3 says this. He is like a tree, this is the blessed person, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So the picture we're given is of a tree, but it's not just any tree. It's not just some random tree. This is a tree that's been taken from its, probably taken from its natural home, most likely a place that's not very hospitable to life, pretty hostile. And it's been planted firmly, it's been transplanted onto a riverbank where it's constantly fed by streams. Now, why is this such a big deal? Think about it for a moment. What is the most important part of a tree? Is it the massive trunk? Is it the leaves? Is it the fruit? I mean, all those things are important, but the most important part of the tree is the part you don't see. It's the root system. You see, the tree can't survive without a strong root system. And so what is being implied here is that this tree has a massive root system. Why? Because it has an abundant and endless supply of water. The tree isn't dependent on the circumstances around it. You ever think about that? The tree is not sitting, hoping, waiting for it to rain. And in in the climate that's probably being talked about, it didn't rain very much. It's not hoping that it gets an occasional shower. Uh, it doesn't need to worry about that because it has an endless stream of, of water. It can handle desert heat. It can handle high winds. It can handle crazy storms because of its location and where it's rooted. So here's, here's the second profound truth I want to give you. Happiness never consists of what happens to you, but in what you are. You might want to jot that down if you're taking notes. Happiness never consists of what happens to you, but in what you are. Where are you rooted? That's a question I've had to ask myself numerous times this week. Where does your strength come from? Where does your hope come from? Where does your life come from? Is it circumstances? Is it yourself? Is it, or is it something else? A Christian is not someone who just does good things or lives a good life. The definition basically of a Christian is somebody who has been planted and rooted in something besides him or herself. I mean, Jesus said it, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches, remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, because a Christ follower has a spiritual root system that's fed by these hidden streams that we don't see, Christ followers not dependent on circumstances that they're around. They, they maintain this inward fulfillment and joy regardless of what they're going through. You know, happiness has nothing to do with whether you're an extrovert or introvert. It has nothing to do with whether you're the life of the party or a homebody. It has nothing to do with the circumstances you're going through, whether you're grieving or feeling overwhelmed or, or hurting. I mean, just look at the rest of the Psalms. 
Most of the other psalms that, that David writes, he's talking about a condition that's not ideal. Look at the life of Jesus and how he cried on numerous occasions or Paul being hard-pressed on every side. And yet we see a joy and a happiness that doesn't go away. You can actually be experiencing both emotions at the same time. But there's something more than, than just this inward, unshakable happiness. The idea of fruit here. Now, now, fruit in the Bible, it means a lot of different things, producing fruit, bearing fruit. We don't have time. That's a whole different sermon. But fruit has one thing in common. All fruit is meant not for the benefit of the tree, but for the benefit of others around it that eat the fruit, right? And so, again, Jesus makes this idea that we, as being rooted in and having these endless streams of water, we ought to be producing fruit for others. Jesus said, I'm giving you living water, and the the way I give it, it's going to just burst out from you, and it's going to affect everyone that you touch. This is the picture of the riverbank tree. This is the ideal. This is what we're shooting for. So like a tree planted on the riverbank, the godly person is planted securely in a source of life that's greater than them. And because of this, they're firmly rooted, they're flourishing, and they're fruitful. And then we get to verse 4, and we get another illustration. And so stay with me. Verse 4, we have the alternative lifestyle. This is the life of the wicked and what their life. And it says this. It says, the wicked are not like this. They're not like the tree. They're like chaff. That the wind drives away. Now, so this second illustration, um, we have this word chaff. Some of you might be wondering, what in the world is chaff? Okay, so chaff is this. They would take uh, grain seeds of wheat or maybe corn or straw. And what they would do is they would run, run something over them. And it would separate the seed from the rest of the plant. And so what you would have is you would have these seeds and then you would have kind of the leftover husk that were like really super light. You could almost think of them like dust or really like dried thin grass. And then they would, they would have these threshing floors where they did this on the, on the highest mountains in Palestine where the, they got the best winds. They would toss it all in the air. The chaff would be blown away. The seeds would fall to the ground. And because chaff was basically useless, it was either scattered or it was burned. And that's the picture that we get of the wicked life, the one that is pursuing the wicked path. Chaff was literally the opposite of the tree. It's worthless, it's useless, it's fruitless, it's rootless, it's swept back and forth by the slightest wind. You want to know what the end result of a life lived like this is? We're told in verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. As one commentator put it, from God's perspective, the wicked have no future because they can't, stand the, they can't withstand the judgment of God. Whether that judgment comes through adversity here and now or whether it comes on the day of the Lord, they're not going to be able to stand. And the consequence of that is they are alienated from those that are righteous. They're judged. But the reality is a person living this lifestyle, they would be absolutely miserable in the midst of God and his people. Just be, be honest. Now, I want to kind of just pause and stop here for a minute and just kind of step back and just take a look at how this pertains to us because I have to be honest with you. I have wrestled with this passage 
for the last two weeks and just trying to get clarity on it, trying to figure it out, certain things, because there's a problem I keep running into. Here's the problem. Maybe you can relate. I'm not always happy. That's kind of concerning for me. <laughs> as far as if I'm supposed to be happy, if I'm on this path, why am I not always happy? I'm not always well watered. I'm not always firmly rooted. I'm definitely not always flourishing or fruitful. I know I'm not on the path of the wicked. But if I were really truthful, I mean, there are moments of weakness in my life where I kind of want to check it out. And so I've experienced life on the riverbank, but when I compare my life to this firmly rooted tree, it falls dramatically short of the image. I'm kind of like a tree with legs. I, I have endless access to the riverbank. I've been given that. But uh, I uproot myself and I walk over and I like to hang out in the desert every once in a while. That's kind of what characterizes my life, to be honest. So the question I'm wrestling with is where does that put me? Again, maybe you can relate. Maybe you're asking the same questions. You see, it's one of two things. There's two questions we can ask here. Do I really want to be happy? And then the second question is, do I really trust that God knows what he's talking about and that he's telling the truth? Because you see, if I'm delighting in other things over my relationship with God, if I'm not taking his word seriously and meditating on it, if I'm ignoring my internal root system, if I'm listening to the counsel of the wicked more than I'm listening to God's voice, then one of two things has to be true. Either I don't really want happiness or I don't really trust that God knows what he's talking about. And every single one of us, I think if we were honest, would have to fall into one of those two categories. Now, before going any further, I do think it's important that we remember Psalm 1 is wisdom literature, okay? There's something really kind of special and unique about wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, it often... Um, characterizes things or presents things in a very um, idealistic or oversimplistic way. I mean, we see that in Psalm 1, right? Uh, we have two paths. These are the two extremes. On one end, you have the path of the righteous. On the other, you have the path of the wicked. But here's the reality. We all know that in between those two extremes lie a countless number of paths. It's not just those two. So what, what do we do with Psalm 1? I mean, why is it even here? Why should I even bother with it? And I think it's vital for several reasons. Can I give you three? I think first of all, it does provide us a portrait of what a riverbank tree should look like. Continually rooted, watered constantly, never veering from the path of righteousness. That is what our lives should look like. That is what the river tree should look like. Secondly, it reminds me that I fall dramatically short of this portrait. I don't have what it takes to navigate the path of the blessed life. I constantly find myself lost because I've chosen to stray from the one true path that leads to life, 
I can totally relate with Paul. Paul in Romans 7, he says this. He says, I find this law at work at me. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me. And these two things are waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Work with me. And he comes to the only conclusion possible. His next statement is, what a wretched man am I? When I put my life up against this portrait, that is the conclusion I arrive at. But there's a third important point to this that gives hope. You see, finally, Psalm 1 gives me an appreciation for grace. Even as I willingly stray from the path that I know leads to life, I know that this standard was perfectly met in the life of Jesus, who walked the path perfectly so he could come down and rescue me in my lost state. Paul says that he continues that idea, and this is what he says, what a wretched man am I, who's going to rescue me, is his next question. And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 6 of the psalm spells out the biggest difference between the people that find themselves on these two paths. One simple question decides what path you go on. Will I trust myself Or will I trust God to direct my steps? That determines what path you find yourself on. And so as I I close out our time together, I want to finish with a story. Uh, It's the story of the last flight of the Lady Be Good, which was a, a bomber airplane that had a lot of successful wartime missions. You see, one night as the Lady Be Good was flying back home, from what was really one of her familiar bombing runs. I mean, the crew had flown this over and over and over again. Um, the inst- something interesting happened. Um, they, the instruments were telling the crew that it was actually time to land the plane. But they had made way too good time. And so the crew, they're checking their clocks, they're checking their watches, and they're realizing that, uh, that there's something off here. Either... Uh, their instruments and calculations, which are telling them it's time to land, are wrong, or their clocks are wrong, which to them seemed impossible. And so this placed the crew in a really precarious situation. They could either trust their instincts, or they could trust the plane's instruments. You see, if they if they believed their instruments and they came down too soon, they were probably going to get shot down by the enemy. However, if they trust their clocks and they stayed up in the air too long and overshot things, they were going to find themselves crashing in the desert. Now, what the crew didn't know was that on this particular night, there was a very powerful tailwind that hurtled the massive craft much faster than normal. The crew, unfortunately, chose to ignore their instruments. They trusted their gut-level hunches. They chose to stay up, and they overshot the airfield. The plane was found days later, crashed in the desert. All the crew had perished. You see, like the lady, be good, we're all on a journey. 
in making the determination on which paths to take, we have to make a decision. And for those decisions, we either have to trust our gut-level hunches or we have to trust in God and his promises. For those that trust their hunches, the end result, we're told, is disaster and destruction. But for those who place their trust in God, it says he knows them. That word know right there is like how a man and a wife know each other. It's intimate. He knows the people. He walks with them. He guides them uh, on the path to life and real happiness. Who will you and I trust? See, our answers are not going to be seen in just the words that we respond. They're going to be seen in the actions that we take. Let's pray. Father, I'm up here as one who, um, again, it's, it's not an easy thing to preach, but it's a whole lot easier to preach your word than it is to live it out. And so I'm, I'm in the midst of this trying to figure this stuff out too. And I just pray right now that you would be speaking to our hearts. You would be drawing us to yourself. And that, Father, that, that you would change us uh, because of the power of who you are and your promises to us. I pray these, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.